Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. It is episode 194. We've got two big interviews today. We have got Joe Hildebrand, News Corp columnist. We're going to be talking to him about his article in News.com today. You last week, which everyone should go check out. Talking about Joel Fitzgibbon's resignation from Labor's front bench, what that means for Labor going forward, and how you know it, it basically exacerbates all this tension between old Labor, working class values, trying to get make uh, trying to make sure people uh, you know improve their lives versus new Labor woke uh, climate change stuff like that. So that is you know it's a it's a fun interview, it's a loose interview. I get changed halfway through, so uh, stick around for that. That's a visual treat for the people uh, watching on YouTube. And, Not on uh, screen, just to clarify. And we are also talking to Caroline DeRusso, who is a Sky News contributor. People might uh, would have definitely seen her on Sky News. We're going to be talking to her because she's a Western Australian. Western Australia's hard border closures under the microscope this week. We're going to be talking to her about that. So two fun interviews coming up. Pete, what are you looking forward to in the show today? Well, definitely great to speak to Joe. I think Joe back in the day was probably our first sort of external interview and then he was back on the show this week, which was great. Uh, And, you know, he dropped a few naughty words, which we had to bleep out. That's all right. That's Joe. Uh, Or a wife beater. So it was a really fun interview. Check that out. And of course, right at the end of the show, we're going to talk about one of my favorite facts in the world, James. I don't want to give it away now, but one of my favorite things about the world we're going to discuss in the final bit of the show so wait for all right i'm looking forward to that all right so let's talk about the main news story in australia this week and that is this like growing cluster in south australia and what that means for basically christmases all over australia and also obviously whether or not south australia is going to get into lockdown so as we're recording this i mean you know people might listen to the show later in the week we're recording on tuesday at the moment there's 20 cases and only one new overnight and a vast majority of the cases are linked to one single family, which is, you know, good in a sense because it shows that people know where the cases are. But this still could change 15 different directions and various state governments have already made some big sweeping changes to policies about travel. So I think we'll start off with what this means for South Australia, Pete, because like mm. Victoria's is coming out of lockdown. No other state's been back into lockdown since that first wave. But now the rumours are starting that South Australia might go back if this continues to grow. Yeah, my heart just absolutely sunk for the people of South Australia yesterday when it came out that there was this cluster. Uh, Thank God, so far, it looks like there's only been one new one overnight. But as you mentioned, that can change quickly. But hopefully, hopefully it doesn't. Hopefully, they have got it under control. But anyway, as you mentioned, there's already been changes brought in overnight. They've closed gyms, recreation centres, trampoline and play cafes. James, uh, community sports fixtures have been postponed. Funerals have been capped at 50 mourners. Weddings, uh, you have to register your details. Private gatherings, etc. Anyway, so they've already... I won't go through them all. They're, they're, they're all on the internet. Uh, it's already been brought in that there's been a number of changes made. Um, so, you know, having been through what we've been through, James, I just hope it doesn't go any further. Well, here we go, because that is what South Australia has done off 17 new cases out of a population of over 2 million in the state. 17 new cases can bring that level of tumultuousness to people's plans, to people's freedoms, to people's businesses. Uh, This is what elimination strategy brings you. If you don't trust your own contact tracing team and you don't trust your own hospital systems to be able to manage any outbreaks effectively, and everyone always says, everyone always says there's going to be other outbreaks, there's going to be more outbreaks, uh, but then when they actually come, everyone just straight up panics and closes as much as they can after 17 cases. Yeah, um, the, the, they've had 
Absolutely, you know, months and months and months to improve. Sorry, it's twenty pricing. now, but like they. Sorry, it was twenty now, but when those uh, announcements were made, it was at seventeen. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So they've had months and months and months to work this out. Uh, they get their contact tracing up to date. We should point out the things that they've brought in are not like a total lockdown or anything like that. But um, th- this is definitely something they should be able to, uh, what's the word, contact trace the way New South Wales were able to do. They've already accepted help from the federal government, which we know that the Victorian government famously didn't do because uh, I guess certain people wanted to be in charge and didn't want to accept help from uh, a Liberal Prime Minister. So that at least has happened Um you know, there's there's uh, there's got to be a way to look after this without shutting everything down, and, and, and they have increased testing over the last little bit. So um, hopefully that's what happens, and, and and also the priority. You know, like Stephen Marshall, the um, the Premier of South Australia, has already come out and said, you know, we will do whatever it takes to stop this. We'll throw um, we'll throw whatever we need to at this. But it's like you know, a report came out in the Australian this morning about how kids, 160,000 kids between year eight and year ten. Um, in Victoria, it's 22 weeks of school and there's this absolute mental health. You know, as they return to school, they're finding that actually the mental health issues haven't started improving yet and a lot of kids have got a lot of anxiety about returning to school. Um, we made a decision to put older people ahead of younger people um, all around the world and, and certainly in Victoria. And when when, it, when the Premier comes out and says, we're going to do whatever it takes, it's like, well, are you really? Are you really going to do stuff like that? Are you really going to put the welfare of adults ahead of the welfare of children? So um, hopefully that's just talk and hopefully they're able to sort of stay open uh, as far as possible. But we, we have to be aware that there are other things in life apart from just not dying of COVID. Yeah, Pete saying the word hopefully and it remains to be seen a lot. Holding on to that little bit of hope, which uh, as Victorians, we Victorians learned in second lockdown, never use hope as a guiding principle of what's going to happen because always expect the most draconian restrictions just so state premiers can walk up to national cabinet with a fresh zero on their score sheet. Anyway, the other stats that I want to get through. So in the first set of lockdowns, when the nation was locked down as one, 43,000 South Australians lost their jobs. And South Australia already has the lowest percentage of its population who has a job out of all the mainland states. So you think about what a second lockdown would do to that. Again, 20 cases what we're at. So 43 have already lost their job. 43,000 already lost their jobs. Some are starting to get them back. I mean, as IPA researchers have been showing this whole like, oh, we're going to bounce back immediately. That is not actually happening. There's still all these job losses in small businesses, even in open up states. But anyway, so 43,000 people are starting to get their jobs back. If a second lockdown comes across, not only do they go straight back onto job seeker and job keeper, other jobs may follow as well. And this is... Uh, an absolute travesty for people that have worked so hard, sacrificed so much for a state government to lose so much uh, calmness after just 20 cases. And Evan Mulholland, you know, friend of the show, friend of the like uh, communications director here at the IPA, was on Paul Murray Live last night, basically calling for, look, this is the problem with job seeker and job keeper, which were good policies and they should have been implemented, but it does give state premiers this... Uh, this like safety net of just going, oh, well, the federal government's going to pay for all these jobs that we're uh, going to be sacrificing out of this health geek. So if the state premiers are able to start footing some of the bill, maybe we won't see this level of panic. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we talk about it all the time about how the state governments, not just in COVID policy, but on a range of things, uh, they have they make all these policies, but they don't have the responsibility of actually raising the money to pay for them, which the federal government does. So that's a, an ongoing problem with Australia's federal system. The other point about this, James, is that already you can see Marshall, the Premier of South Australia, trying to sort of blame the people of South Australia. He said, uh, oh, let me just get the quote up. Sorry, I haven't quite got it on the page 
Yeah. Oh, he goes, uh, I think many South Australians might have been becoming complacent over the week on 5AA radio. Very good, radio. James. Yeah. Very, very good. That's what I need to hear for. Yeah, so which is he's like, hang on, mate. This is a failure of hotel quarantine. Someone in the hotel um, had got it. And, and it sounds like it was reasonably unlucky that they got it. But, you know. Yeah, they didn't not- even, like the report is they didn't even come into contact with someone from, uh, who was in hotel quarantine. It was just mm. somehow passed among them, maybe like uh, on a dish or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't even say it's a failure of hotel quarantine. I think it's just the reality of we are living with a very contagious virus and this is going to happen and you don't need a finger point and you don't need a lockdown. You just need to make sure contact tracing works and make sure your hospital systems are able to treat patients. That's right. That's exactly right. So to suddenly start blaming people, blaming the people of South Australia is completely unfair. And I know for a fact that was one of the things here in Victoria that was really like, I cannot believe you're blaming this on us. So uh, I would not do that. Now, the main thing for me, well, not the main thing for me, James, because this is a very important uh, issue. But one of the issues, unfortunately for me, is the dreaded vertical consumption is back in terms of the word vertical consumption, the actual act of vertical consumption, which of course... Oh, yes. I forgot about this. I was thinking it was like this serious (laughs) economics point that you were going to bring up and I had to adjust my seating position to get big brain. But no, no, no. We're talking drinking. Well, it is serious, James. And as we talked about, uh, we talked about a few weeks ago on the show that South Australia brought back in vertical consumption, which of course means drinking standing up, uh, which, which was an outrageous that they gave it this scientific term. Anyway, it's been banned now, so... Double tragedy. It's been banned and they're still throwing around that term, even though I said they shouldn't be. So another issue that the people of South Australia have to deal with. So we're going to get... uh, The other part of this is the response of other states. So the idea that all states should be open by Christmas and that everyone's Christmas plans should be able to go forward has long been this push by Scott Morrison and push by National Cabinet. We could talk about this with Caroline DeRusso later in the show. but here's what happened. So this is outbreak again. This is uh, we're at 20 cases. So that's all we're at. We're at 20 cases right now. And immediately on the uh, news that the cluster was coming out, immediately Western Australia put up their borders again. No surprise. Queensland said parts of South Australia you can't come in. Northern Territory, South Australia, Victoria, they've all said, okay, if you are coming in from South Australia, here are the restrictions. Now, again, we're going to have outbreaks, and it's just. It's borderline inhumane because so many people have, uh, would have absolutely no confidence in booking to see family over Christmas or booking to go anywhere because how can you tell that a state border is going to be open? How can you tell that any of your plans are going to be met because a state premier might just go, okay, there's, uh, you know, maybe it's 15 cases. We've had zero. This other state's got 15. Border closed. Bad luck. Yeah, and there's even, and there's even like, you know, there's sort of people not being able to see their family, but there's really tragic circumstances of people not being able to see relatives who are, who are dying and things like that. Uh, it sort of goes to this whole thing that the the, the state premiers of, or well, all governments really in Australia have made, like COVID deaths the only thing that matters and there's nothing else in the... In, but not even uh, COVID deaths, it's just new cases. Yeah. And the second yeah, just, it gets to 10, we're in panic stations. Yeah, just COVID. Yeah, so just, just COVID, COVID, COVID. It's the only thing that matters. Um, they, they've created this idea that this is the only thing we need to be worried about. And once you've done that, it's hard to then go, oh, no, a bit of COVID is okay. So, uh, yeah, they've created this situation. I know that Dan Andrews has left the borders open with South Australia, which is, you know, credit where Parts it's due, Parts of James. South Australia. Parts of Parts Australia. Of- yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. The, the only one that's like still fully open is New South Wales and the ACT. Well, there you go. So, so cancel that. Anyway, I did notice that he uh, offered to offered to help uh, give help give South Australia any help they might need. I just reckon you might sit this one out, big guy. 
Just, yeah, just let... From Victorians, you don't want that because he's going to say, see, this particular freedom here, get rid of that one as well. Like, that's yeah. his only contribution to the meeting. It was like, wait, 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 you're letting them do this? No. How long are you letting them exercise nine, for? A 905 walk? No, no, that can't be doing. No, exactly right. So, yeah, I saw that. But, uh, yeah, no, interesting times, James. And obviously, by, by the time many people listen to this, it, uh, the situation might have changed. Yeah, I mean, by next episode, South Australia might be back in full lockdown. So hopefully not, and you don't want to go through that. And again, it's only 20 cases at the moment. Uh, But yeah, it's just, it's signaling to the rest of Australia that you have no faith in your state's contact tracing team. Anytime this happens, if if 20 is panic stations, what have you guys been doing a contact tracing for six months? Yeah, and especially, and South Australia has barely had any, they've only had four deaths in total. So it's like, you know, they've, they've basically had a lot of clear air to sort this out and to to have a, a good response to it. Anyway, maybe they have. Let's not uh, let's not bag them before it's actually happened. All right, another story. This one didn't get as much attention as I reckon it should have because it is scary. So this comes across like uh, basically in this idea of these national uh, registrations and making sure people's movements are being tracked or, and, and also like around the vaccine and stuff like that. But basically one of the ideas that's being floated in this federal registry of... Uh, where people are going, making sure they're not being exposed to COVID, is this idea that credit card payments will be used to track visits to coronavirus hotspots while people will have to provide contact details. This is really, really concerning. The federal government might be able to check through your credit card where you've been. And people might go, okay, well, you know, I'm already registering for a cafe and these are the details that I want to give this cafe just so I can sit down. But again, like this is the lesson with people's personal data being given to the government. It is not just who you think you're giving it to. It's all these other ones. I mean, when metadata, metadata was just supposed to be catching terrorists. That was the only thing it was supposed to be doing. And then the IPA released all those agencies that have requested access to metadata, including a fishing fishery service in Western Australia. They said, okay, we need access to people's metadata. So you don't know who's going to be viewing this. And if you start handing over your credit card details maybe the Australian tax office wants to have a look at that. Maybe these other people want to have a look at that. And you just think, wait, exactly who needs to know what I'm using my credit card for and where? Yeah, I, I never I never knew that WA Fisheries people were got access to the metadata. James, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, that's a that's a real worry. Yeah, well, this is the same thing we talk about with, with every time that there's we, we want uh, the government to collect more data. You know, it creates these silos that people can... Uh, the silos of information that people can access. It doesn't really seem to be necessary. It seems disproportionate in this case. New South Wales, they have used this credit card thing in one instance in New South Wales, but it appears to be only one. So the rest of the contact tracing they're able to do without creating this huge data risk. Um, and, you know, what people, people's, you can tell a lot about people's lives that they might not want you to know. Uh, from their credit card details, you know, like all sorts of, there's all, there's all sorts of situations where people might be purchasing something which tells you something about their life um, that, you know, in this day and age when we see hacking takes place all the time and we see reputations get destroyed all the time, we're just creating this this problem that uh, down the track and it, once again, we're falling into this thing of, you know, COVID, 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 it's the only thing we need to worry about and then in 10 years time, we find we've got this situation where, you know, all, all this information just sitting there and people... Um, people you know suffer from the unintended consequences of that so yeah it's a disproportionate response and, and the unintended consequences haven't been thought through i don't think yeah, 
Yeah, it's not just the ministers you need to be worried about with this sort of stuff. I mean, there was that the famous cases from the national, uh, the NSA over in the USA, and they were supposed to only be following mm. terrorists, but then particular NSA agents would just, you know, I wonder what my ex girlfriend's up to right now. Who's she seeing? Like, that's the kind of stuff you need to be worried about as well. All right, um, and foreign powers. So, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So those are the two main stories. We'll now get into heroes and villains. Uh, all right. We'll start off with heroes. Grant the big freedom snort. Who has stood up for freedom around the world this week? Pete, take us with, take it away. Well, James, we are reasonably critical of the coalition on this program, uh, but this well, not always, but but quite often. Anyway, this week I am making them a hero because Assistant Minister to the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ben Morton has announced that they are rewrite, rewriting public sector wage policy for the federal bureaucracy. So basically, what they're doing to, to cut a long story short, they're ensuring that Commonwealth public sector wage rises can no longer exceed wage rises in the private sector uh, and they're basically going to um, they're going to peg public sector wage growth with private sector wage growth now obviously there's the economic side of this because government spending is not good for the economy but it's more important james from a moral perspective because it's just it is really it's a moral issue the fact that this big chunk of the economy will never get sacked they get better wages to be honest a lot of them don't have to work as hard uh, they have great conditions than the private sector but the private sector is literally paying for their wages. So some guy who can't open his cafe to more than like five people still has to pay the wages of people whose wages have continued to increase throughout the pandemic. We know that since 14th of March, 605,900 private sector workers have been thrown out of work, while 23,700 public sector workers have been hired. What people don't seem to realise is they just think, oh, you know, what's that got to do? You know, those two facts don't have anything to do with each other. The private sector people pay the wages of the public sector. It's not the government. The government doesn't make a cent. They make all their money from the private sector. And, and in and this time when the private sector is getting smashed, it's completely immoral that the public sector should continue to get, um, you know, wage rises. And even even without the COVID pandemic, it's, it's, um, it's immoral. So uh, the coalition, you are my... Um, you're my hero this week. To, to Ken uh, Hussey from the IPA said that we should be um, also reforming the superannuation contribution that we make to public sector workers. That could be the next step. So they receive 15.4% compared to the private sector of 19 point, of 9.5%. Um, but anyway, Coalition is my hero this week. Very good. All right. Uh, my one, we kind of went over this in the border closure chat, but I, I mean, can't believe I didn't speak just- over it actually. It's yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, it's just so basically, just basically Gladys Berejiklian's statement about why she was keeping the border open. You can't shut down borders and disrupt lives every time there's an outbreak and disrupt businesses. We need to have confidence, not just in our own system, but the system in other states to be able to get on top of the virus. Just so refreshing, like, yeah, it's weird. It's so refreshing to hear a premier speak like that, but at the same time, it absolutely should not be refreshing to hear a premier speak like that. Like, this whole concept that, yeah, you can't change border policy three out of four days of the week shouldn't be as mind-blowing as I think it is, but it is. No, exactly right. And Gladys is right. All the way through, she's been like, look, this is a serious thing. We have to worry about it, but it is not the only thing in the world, and we have to be able to, you know, maintain other parts of our community throughout this what is that noise oh, controversial I think uh, that, that might be your laptop oh. I think you might I think that actually sounds like Gladys Berejiklian <laughs> I think we're just hearing from the woman herself <laughs> I think you might have like cortana this like what did Gladys Berejiklian say and it might have cortana a statement <laughs> that is amazing. we're keeping that in Saul I'm telling you we're keeping that in alright should we I go villains I they're listening to us what's that sorry your villains yeah <laughs> 
can't get over that. Um, Villains. All right. Well, you know, as we know, the fake nudie run. Uh, saw roll the tape, mate. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. So that is the Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. That's not a real nudie run. Therefore, anyone who has stood up for tyranny and against liberty this week is called a fake. The Extinction Rebellion run, fake nudie run, villain of the week. James, who's yours? I can't believe we still use that footage. Anyway, uh, my one this week. Sorry. This one, you guys remember couple of months ago, the uh, Harper's Bazaar letter against cancel culture was signed by all those people talking about how uh, it's so hard to say what you really think on the internet these days. I mean, we, we on the show covered it, but we were sort of saying how the letter really quoted that it was attacks from both sides of the aisle uh, that was making it harder to express yourselves, like it was both Trump supporters and the far left. And I'm not saying there aren't Trump supporters looking to cancel people, but I thought that was a bit... You know, it wasn't the strongest statement against cancel culture that I'd ever read in my life, but it is actually starting to have a bit of an effect on people's jobs. So Matthew Iglesias, who people would know from Vox, if you've seen a really cool graph on the internet in the last four years, chances are Matthew Iglesias put put it together. But anyway, he has now left Vox, and one of the reasons was... He was one of the signatories of the anti-cancel culture letter, which people that worked at Vox said made it an unsafe place to work. So the idea of the revolution eating its own comes to mind, because if you can't even say that I don't like cancel culture, you're not even saying something like, uh, here's a controversial statement that I have and I can't say it. You're just saying like, you know what? I don't like the fact that we're cancelling other people, not even me, we're cancelling other people based off what they're saying. Like, that now is too far for Vox. It's mm. it's crazy. That's interesting, that point you raised about uh, the revolution eating its own, because I used to say that all the time. I used to think, oh, yeah, this will just burn itself out. And I haven't heard that for a while. Maybe that's something I should think about a bit more. Do you know what I mean? Because I sort of started to think with all the crazy stuff that's happened this year that maybe the revolution wouldn't eat its own. But, um, yeah, I guess we should still consider the possibility that cancel culture will collapse underneath its own ridiculousness. Yeah, they'll the, the, the cancel every single member of the cancel culture tribe, in mm. which case everyone will have been cancelled. And the mm. only people left standing with uh, that have not been cancelled are the single most boring people in the world because they have no opinion. They just say whatever's popular on the internet at the time. Yeah, there you go. All right, so that's Vox. That's the that's your villain, is that right? Uh, yeah, and it just affects the act of design. So anyway, your villain this week, Pete. My villain, James, is Bates College in Maine. Uh, specifically the spineless, craven, gutless, cowardly response of the administration of Bates College uh, in response to this very confected controversy. Now, they did a photo series on the college's Instagram account about you know getting people to vote, and there were 11 photos used, and they were all of neutral or left-leaning political organisations, except for one, James. There was one single person in this photo series who is a republican and because of that this as you can under, as you know, would, won't be surprised to hear this sparked a uh, protest at Bates College uh, and I kind of don't blame the students because students always do stupid stuff right that's just the nature of being a university I mean I blame them except for bit. our listeners except for our listeners yeah um, of course um, and of course all college students anywhere in the world should be listening but yeah, maybe one day they will anyway what happened was <laughs> Whatever. So they had a protest and a rally and all this stuff, but the, the, the thing that hurt the most was the apology. Sean Finland, who's a spokesperson for the school, said, to be clear, that's not where it should stop. I need to do more work. My colleagues need to do more work. So they apologized and then used all this language like, I need to do more work. I need to do better. It's like it was literally a photo of a Republican and saying, you know, go and vote this weekend or go and vote on Tuesday. And then anyway, the uh, 
president of the whole joint, said it was incredibly insensitive of me to speak out about the election without taking that into account. Uh, this guy's name is Spencer. Uh, added harm, fear, and feelings of unsafety inflicted on the Bates community that the election supposedly caused. So the students for being closed-minded and bigoted, you're partly my uh, villain, but mainly it's the cowardly, craven, gutless college administration, James. It is saying the quiet part out loud because so many celebrities and so many people were just saying, hey, get out and vote in November. Get out and vote. Get out and vote. And it was never like get out and vote even if you're a Republican, it was always get out and vote blue. So they, but they just thought, oh, that it's too obvious if we say it like that. But now that this website has taken down the Trump supporter, it's a bit like, yeah, we, I know what we said about get out and vote, but, but not all of them. Yeah, it wasn't like like those people over there, they don't need to get out and vote. They can stay home. But you, you know, you, you people that lean left, you get out and vote. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, get out and vote because democracy is beautiful and it's your inalienable right and, you know, you need to say in your future it's when yeah. you get rid of this orange Yeah, bike. get it. Orange man bad. Uh, all right, that is it for the start of the show. We'll now go to our interviews with Joe and Caroline. Before we do, the Young IPA podcast, obviously brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, head on over to ipa.org.au slash join. We've got a bunch of different memberships. We've got... Uh, Generation Liberty membership, if you're a young person or you're at university right now, we've got general membership for all of the other listeners we have out there and even premium memberships as well. Uh, be a part of Australia's greatest voice for freedom. So head on over to ipa.org.au slash join now. All right, let's go to those interviews. Okay, we now welcome on to the podcast News Corp journalist, Joe Hildebrand. Check him out. Uh, Daily Telegraph, news.com.au, wherever you want. So Joe, welcome to the show. Great to be here, guys. How are you? Yeah, very good. So we wanted to talk to you because you wrote an article for news.com.au and all these other News Corp websites, basically looking at the long-term effects of Joel Fitzgibbon's resignation to the Labor Party. And uh, it was such a good article. Me and Pete really liked it. We want to talk about it. So I want to give our listeners an idea. Oh, please. Uh, So give our our listeners an idea. What is the long-term effects of uh, Fitzgibbon's resignation? Well, I suppose the first thing to understand is that Fitzgibbon's resignation from the front bench is really just a symbolic gesture. It's not, you know, Joel Fitzgibbon's particular workplace arrangements aren't what's at stake here. The, the point is he's made a, uh, a, I suppose, drawn a line in the sand and fired a warning shot to um, the leadership of the party or a shot across the bowels, if you like, to say that, look, unless we change, unless we change our rhetoric, uh, especially, and unless we talk about how we're going to implement our policy rather than setting sort of arbitrary targets around climate change, we are going to lose seats. We're going to lose supporters. We're going to lose voters. We're going to lose the working class, which I thought Labor was meant to be representative of. Um, And we are going to lose seats, starting most probably with Joel Fitzgibbon's own seat. So as Paul Keating once said, always back self-interest. It's the only horse you know that's really trying. But the point is, he's absolutely right. Um, There's there's little doubt that there is a huge section of the community that was once Labor's traditional blue-collar base that now feels alienated by um, a lot of the language that's used uh, by um, perhaps even if not necessarily always the party leaders themselves, but certainly the people around them and a lot of people who uh, claim to be supporters of or speak for the Labor Party. you could call it 
for the sake of shorthand, you could call it the sort of the inner city green left or whatever. And, you know, people get all upset about that. I don't really give a rat's. But um, but it, it is that kind of woke style of politicking that seems to be more about things like policing language, more like preaching tolerance, often very intolerantly, but preaching diversity, but not tolerating any divergent views. Um, and and moving away from the basic bread and butter, which is to improve people's uh, living conditions, their living standards, their wages, and, and, and saving their jobs. And that is what Labor was founded on. Labor was founded by a bunch of shearers who were trying to save their jobs and earn a, a decent living wage. And that is a very, very far cry from uh, where it is at the moment, where it seems more about an ideologically driven party that, uh, that certainly, I mean, I, I love the party, obviously. I wouldn't be trying to save it if I didn't. But it seems I know to a lot of people in the Labor right, to a lot of people in the union movement, and I talk to them every day and they are, I, I can't, you know, I just I had to delay this because of another phone call from another person. But I've been bombarded by people who are too scared to speak up publicly, Joel Fitzgibbon notwithstanding. So it looks like he's the lone soldier. He is not. Um, pretty much everyone in the New South Wales right and, and, and many others besides are 100% behind him but they dare not speak up publicly because this is the whole problem when you have the hard left of the party dictating an ideological template and saying if you do not conform to this then you are then you must be a closet racist or a closet homophobe or you must be transphobic or whatever whatever ridiculous thing is in these people's mind then of course people are going to be scared to to speak up and of course you have a party that is uh, built on solidarity that is built on unity where you can scream your head off to people in a caucus meeting or a shadow cabinet meeting or whatever it may be, but you cannot breach um, uh, cabinet solidarity or caucus solidarity. So you can have an argument, for example, in the caucus room about what your position is, but when that caucus hits the floor of parliament, you've all got to vote lockstep. So it is a party that punishes disloyalty and that often sees any, um, any argument or dispute as disloyalty, and that is why so many people in the party are equally frustrated at Joel Fitzgibbon, and you can sort of understand that. But he's obviously taken the decision um, that that if something big doesn't happen and it doesn't party doesn't change its ways soon, uh, frankly, it will die. It will never win government nationally um, in our in our lifetimes. Joe, the problem you set out then uh, is kind of one that's facing centre-left parties around the world. You can see it with the Democrats and you can see it with Labor in the UK. You're obviously, as you mentioned, a big supporter of Labor. Uh, how do, is it possible to keep both sides happy? Can Labor keep both sides happy or does one side or the other have to win? What's the long-term solution to this? I, I think, look, I think it's always been, um, it's, it's, ever since Whitlam, I suppose, there's been this tension between the sort of university-educated, progressive, quote-unquote, uh, inner city labour left and the the working class union based right and and the union based right has uh, and has always had the numbers and that's been Labor's saving grace. If uh, what we've seen recently um, and Whitlam for all the left loving was a member of the right, let's not forget, and was often keeping his own sort of more um, extremist elements at bay. What we've seen. Um, recently and again the golden age of labor there's this sense that labor was is the natural party of government it's so it's worth noting very quickly here labor has only ever had one period in government 
of more than two terms, and that was under Hawke and Keating. Um, they every other time they've either themselves up or gone too far in one direction or another. So we talk about you know Gough Whitlam, the shining aberration. The bloke was only around for three years. I'm not sure if he even clocked up the full 36 months, and then he went you know and the dismissal. That was outrageous. But people also forget that he was voted out in an absolute landslide a month after that. And then he was voted out again, or rather as opposition leader when he recontested in 77, he got smashed in a landslide again. So the idea that that he is the one true, um, uh, you know, leader to lead us out of here. Um, when you had Curtin and Chifley, so that was a, a big block of labour, I should say. I'm talking about the post-war era, obviously. Um, but you have Curtin and Chifley, what happened with Chifley he tried to nationalise the banks and, and we all know what happened next. Again, when Labor goes too far to the left, it gets punished. Um, coming back to the post-war era, again, there's only been one time that Labor has won uh, more than two terms of government. That is under Hawke Keating. That was when both men were absolute card-carrying members of the right. Uh, Keating, of course, was the godfather of the, the New South Wales right. Both were under the tutelage of the um, mercurial and pragmatic Graham Richardson. And and that was how Labor won. And it won in 83, 84, 87, 90, 93. Bang, 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 bang. Five elections on the trot. A royal straight flush. And, and that's how you win. Since then, what has happened, it has lurched between left and right. It's been unsure as to what it actually stood for. Um, you see that play out, obviously, in the seesawing between leaders the bizarre situation where you have Kevin Rudd, nominally from the right, uh, taking, well, going to the polls, I must say, in 07, assuring people he's a fiscal conservative and getting the photo ops outside of church each Sunday morning, just to reassure everyone he's not going to frighten the horses. Um, then pursues uh, fairly left policy on climate change and uh, asylum seekers. That spooks a couple of people in the party. Then there's the miners, whatnot. Julia Gillard, nominally from the left, then with the support of the right, rolls Kevin Rudd, um, goes to the polls, again, uh, promising a conservative agenda, getting rid of the carbon tax and, and reinstituting offshore detention. But of course, as soon as, because, because the party's so successfully eaten its own tail, uh, it doesn't win majority government, it's forced into a coalition with the Greens. And because the party has wholeheartedly forgotten what it stands for, and forgotten even how to keep a promise it just throws out the whole kit and caboodle and does a new deal wax a wax it brings in a new carbon tax with the greens and of course it is that's all she wrote it's electoral poison ever since um uh, you coincide this era with the rise of social media and particularly twitter i was actually trying to think to myself i'm not sure the labor that labor has ever won a majority government since twitter was invented so just think about that. Think about who are the most active people on Twitter, what sort of image of the left and of Labor they are presenting to the public, which often sits quietly and watches in horror, if indeed they're watching at all. And that will tell you how successful that, that and appealing that ideology is. So all these things roll into um, th this problem where Labor has become um, uh, a... Labor has deluded itself into thinking that it's an activist party whose base is the hard left. That's that's never been the case. The Labor Party is a mainstream party whose base is mainstream working class Australia. And somehow or other, they've kind of forgotten that. And people who have tried to remind them of it have been shot down. 
um, because I guess the nature, and as I know, but the nature of the nature of um, exposing extremists or calling out extremists or opposing extremists is you're going to get a pretty extreme reaction. Um, and so people have been scared. Joel Fitzgibbon gets accused of everything under the sun, but fortunately he's got a pretty big pair of kahunas. Um, and there are plenty of other people who are, are very scared that are, are talking about this behind the scenes who know that the party needs to, to change or die. I actually am loving this interview because uh, it's such, such a tradie talk. We're getting Labor back to its tradie roots. Joe's in a singlet. I'm getting caught up in the moment. So, Pete, if you want to ask a question, I'm just going to go full into character and get a singlet on myself and then we can really get Please into do. this right and proper. Yeah, yeah you can't yeah, just yeah. phone it in. Yeah, he, he, he often just goes and does stuff in the middle of interviews, Joe. So don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, so the next question I had for you, actually, so the, the divisions that the centre left parties that we're facing around the world and Labor's facing are actually yeah. also the same kind of divisions that society as a whole is facing. You know, you, the, we have the sort of the elite half of society, uh, as you say, obsessed with climate change and woke politics and stuff like that, and, and more ordinary people interested in the economy um, and you know their their livelihoods and things like that. Why is it that societies, why has society become more um, diverged? Why is that divergence growing? And is that a problem? And what can we do about it, I guess? Um, it, is, it is a very, very big problem. And I actually, believe it or not, was thinking about this just earlier today because I'm just obsessed with these matters and I think about them all the time. Um, and I was wondering if we are not heading towards a political system that is not left and right, but high and low. Mm-hmm. And where you get, where, where it's... Um, and I'll, I'll speak bluntly, but it'll become clear that I'm not speaking um, unkindly, but where it becomes sort of, you know, smart and stupid or high, um, high intelligence or high information voters, which, which is often what the, um, the inner city left um, disgracefully refers to itself as, um, and, and low information voters or whatever. And I think that would be... As, as someone who um, came from a really, uh, not a working class background, to be honest, but a welfare class background, raised by a single mum from welfare from, from Dandenong, um, oddly, uh, very economically disadvantaged, but educationally, I felt very, very lucky because my, my dad, although he, he did leave, but I was still in contact, he went to uni in America, went to Harvard, actually, don't like to brag, but ended up becoming a folk singer, so it tells you everything you need to know about Ivy League. Um, my mum was a teacher. We had a lot of books in the house. So I had that, I had, you know, I'm not playing the poor me, you know, grew up in a log cabin I had to build with my own hands. But, um, but I do know economic disadvantage. Everyone around me was crippled by economic um, issues that simply people at the top of the tree never have to worry about. And again, this is the thing. Climate change is very important, but it's much more important if you've got enough luxury to have, you know, to be able to worry about things in 30 years' time because you don't have to worry about things in 30 days' time when the next mortgage comes in or mortgage payment comes in or, you know, or, or you're just struggling to get by week to week, you know. I was just spoke, you know, I was just speaking to a bloke who was in a hospital in intensive care and when he got discharged, he was going to be homeless. Um, now, uh, got him looked after. The salvos got him looked after. I was just the, the middleman, and I, I won't embarrass him. But um, tell that bloke that he's got to make some sacrifices because we won't meet our twenty fifty Paris targets or, or whatever. That, you know, like unless people can understand that and that people have much bigger problems on their plates, uh, they're not going to realize that. So anyway, so going back to this thing, so 
I there is nothing I find more sickening and elitist than the idea that you'll have all the smart university educated affluent people on the top making decisions and making the same types of decisions because essentially um, they they have the same information and that being rational actors, they'll come to the same conclusions. And then you have all these, you know, the lumpen proletariat at the bottom, the knuckle draggers, um, the, you know, the, the blue collar mine workers who don't know that they're killing the planet, selfish bastards and all that stuff, right? And I, and I thought, oh my God, wouldn't that be just the worst? I mean, that sounds like a bad science fiction movie with, you know, you know that sounds like sort of late Nicolas Cage, if you know what I mean. So, and now I realise, well, that's kind of what already happened and led us here. And it's kind of what happened when you had a duopoly of um, mainstream centre-left, centre-right parties that would that would essentially not really do anything that was particularly different from the others. And again, if you look at Hawke Keating and you look at Howard Costello, it's not that much in it. I mean, the, John Howard was there, you know, backing in all the the Hawke Keating government's economic reforms because he knew that they were necessary because he knew that these things sort of had to happen. And for people who got left behind, they were saying, hang on a minute, now both sides, who do I turn to when both sides are selling me out? And again, I don't want to go, I don't want to, I, I hate populist hard right and populist hard left politics, but we have to understand it. We have to understand what's going on. And it's the same thing in America and Donald Trump where we saw a whole bunch of people, um, particularly in, in 2016, we saw a whole bunch of people, the Midwest working class, white working class men, especially blue collar workers, flocked to Donald Trump because he was talking their language and he was going to say, save their jobs and save their factories. And Hillary Clinton was running around saying, hey, guys, make me the first female president. I'm with her. Hey, they're all going, you. Like, you know, you're meant to do something for me. I'm not meant to do something for you. At least Donald Trump is saying what he's going to do for me. He's going to make America great again so I can still have my job at the car factory. And you're going around telling me that I have to give you your place in history? And and that, I think, is emblematic of how it ended up. So I think, you know, I am a moderate. I am a, a centrist. And I'm very, very much capital C, centre-left. But, if again, if we do not connect with our people, poorer people, working people, working class people who are really struggling. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one, the, one, the, the, the ones who are on the, you know, the seats of their pants, who are, the, who are really struggling, you know, the really poorest of society, they are not the ones who are worried about pronouns or who are worried about Paris Accord targets or whatever. And they are meant to be the people that the left is taking care of and frankly no that they have been forgotten and and they've been forgotten by the parties that's supposed to be taking care of them and in many ways they were probably forgotten before then when politics at the top was more rational and the metronome kind of ticked and talked back between center left and center right but eventually there are enough of these people who felt left behind that you had these tectonic shifts in the US with Donald Trump, obviously, we know what happened there. In the UK with Brexit, where again, people people weren't voting on you know multilateral trade deals with Belgium. People were just saying, "Hey, I'm here. You've you've forgotten about us. You're, you're going around. You're going to you know swanning around Brussels and going to your little cocktail parties and talking in all this fancy language about what we have to do and." you know, why the fish I catch have to be so long or whatever it may be. 
and I'm here struggling to put food on my food on my family's dinner table. And and I just I just want to just flip you the bird. I just want to tell you to get and that's what happens when you lose touch. So I think we were in danger of as as you were talking about James that we were. We were going from that kind of vertical society, which is, you know, probably sounds enlightened to some people. Well, then we'd all just sign up to the, you know, we'd all just have climate change targets and these silly, stupid people, these low information voters who don't know anything about climate change wouldn't even have a say. And you know what? That's actually kind of where we were that led to this um, revolution. And the revolution has sort of broken off in kind of two directions. It's broken off um, in one way to a traditional working class uh uh, voter um, who has gone off to the populist right, often against their own interests, and then a hardcore university-educated ideological left kind of voter slash activist who, in fact, represents um, an incredibly affluent and privileged sector of society. So the left and the right have kind of flipped into this sort of, you know, twisted double helix that doesn't really make sense anymore. And I think we need to untangle it and we need to call a spade a spade and Labor needs to decide, all right, well, who are you with? Do you want to go to the, the inner west dinner parties and talk about how woke you are? Or do you want to go out to the coal mines and say to these workers, you're going to save their jobs. And if you can't save their jobs, then you're going to die by their side, finding them new jobs in their local communities that they themselves will get. And this is another problem with the... I hear time and again with the climate debate say, oh, yes, but for every one job we lose in Cessnock, we'll get two jobs in solar power or whatever. That, that, that may be, that's great. But unless it's the bloke losing the job in Cessnock who gets the new job, that's not much good to him, is it? So there's, you know, if you want to rock up to a, you know, if you want to rock up to the mouth of a coal mine at knockoff time, say, hey, guys, look, good news and bad news. The bad news is you've all been fired, but the good news is we've created twice as many jobs looking after a battery in Adelaide. If, if anyone wants to volunteer for that job, be my guest. Yeah, sweet. Uh, you brought up America before, and that's like, because these tensions in Labor, they haven't been coming up overnight. As you say, they've been there for a while, yep. but they seem to reach a critical point, especially for Joel Fitzgibbon, now that Biden's become president, because the Labor Party here in Australia seems to think that uh, this Biden victory is a big sign that people are starting to accept progressive politics all over the world, and that's why we should embark on our agenda. But I don't think that's true, because it was Biden wasn't supposed to just win. He was supposed to crush Trump, mm. and he didn't, and nor did yep. the Democrats. So I'm not exactly yep. sure that's the lesson you get from the US. What do you reckon the lessons are? Look, I'll, I'll, the, the, look so that is certainly um, what the Labor left are trying to say. I would not defame the whole of the party or and certainly not the Labor right for thinking that. Um, certainly, and again, in my, Joel Fitzgibbon certainly doesn't think that. He's the, last time I checked, he was the national convener of the Labor right, I think. Um, <laughs> um, another mate of mine who is a veteran Labor strategist, um, when he heard this idea being put around, he's his head nearly blew up and he just started sending me just this barrage of text messages, which I um, uh, carefully removed all the F-bombs from and then put yeah. in, and in then my you'll column. Read them out. <laughs> if, you, if, you actually look, if, if you actually look at what happened, um, uh, it, it is absolutely not true. Yes, uh, Joe Biden won a very high popular vote. That was on the back of California and New York, which simply doesn't matter at all. In those heartland states, in those Midwest states, 
it was an incredibly close run thing and looked very, very close for a very long time. And the fact that Donald Trump could simultaneously be accused of killing a quarter of a million people through his, you know, lunacy over COVID-19, it could be accused of being the most sexist, racist, um, illegitimate, foul, misogynist man ever to walk the face of the earth. He had his own family members lining up to character assassinate him. And, and he still won Florida. You know, and he still and he sat. He, he scored big increases in minority votes, big increases in the black vote, big increases in the gay vote, the Latino vote. Uh, again, interestingly enough, a lot of those white working class voters who who got him in in 2016, they went back to Joe Biden. But the the minorities who the left of the Democrats claimed to represent and claimed to speak for, they did not. They went away. Um, they went away to. To Donald Trump, and and again, this is further proof that um, a, a you know a, a black person speaking in New York or California about these sort of lofty issues of we can you know I saw that incredibly condescending video that Kamala Harris put out you know describing to stupid workers the difference between equity and equality or whatever because the people they're helping might be too stupid to even know they're helping so we put it in a little cartoon video I thought that was nauseatingly condescending I'm pretty sure that doesn't resonate again with low-income workers who uh, often uh, often black workers who are really struggling I think there's a big gap between um, uh, black men and black women and how they vote as well um, and how they feel about certain issues and you know, and again, for, for working people, people who are struggling on the breadline, that sort of just doesn't cut through. But that is what the East and West Coast elites of America keep talking about. You know, the Green New Deal is not going to resonate with someone who, again, is, is you know, sweeping streets, um, cleaning toilets, driving buses. Um, so, again, so the, the fact that this guy was the most vilified bloke in probably all of human history had everything thrown at him, was told every day for the last six months he had the blood of 250,000 people on his hands and he still won the second highest popular vote in US election history. Now, people voted against Trump for all different reasons. There were literal card-carrying communists voting against him. There were moderate big city Republicans voting against him. Why didn't, you know, if, if this was so much of a landslide for Biden, why didn't he win the Senate? Where did all those votes go? Why did they go backwards in the House of Representatives? There are a lot of people who were double dealing, who were, didn't like Trump but still voted Republican. That's that's clear in the results. Uh, and again, you know, it's 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 you know, if you if if you can't get a landslide against the person you have painted Donald Trump to be, then then that is a very big problem. The task they've now set themselves is that every single uh, presidential candidate. If, if Trump comes back in 2024, what are they going to do? They're going to have to get a record vote again to beat him because there's 70 million just Trump votes out there. You know, the people voting against him for a whole bunch of reasons. There were 70 more than 70 million people who voted just for him, and a lot of them are the minorities and working class people that the Democrats are supposed to be the party representing. And that is a very, very big problem. So, Joe, you did mention it briefly there um, that this idea that the centre-right parties like the Republicans and obviously the coalition here in Australia 
and, and it's an idea that's been talked about heaps since the election, but also before then, about this idea that those parties will become multiracial, multi-ethnic, working-class parties, or at least partly that. Uh, are you worried about that? Do you think that's likely, um, or do you think that's a talking point? Uh, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think um, it's it's very it, look. It is it is very interesting. I think there will be. I think the first thing is that Labor needs to um, make a place for uh, people who are socially conservative and economically aspirational. So it needs to respect people's religious and cultural traditions. Frankly, you've got, um, you know, ironically, you've you've, you've got a, um, you know, a, a wing of the party that says, all right, we should just let every single asylum seeker come in from wherever they are and anyone who doesn't like it is racist or Islamophobic or whatever, blah, blah. But if these people actually express their religious or cultural beliefs, so they, oh, no, you're a racist, sexist, homophobe. Um, and and it's very rare that um, you'll find these, these people brave enough to do it to, to someone who actually holds these beliefs, such as, for example, the, the huge number of uh, migrant uh, communities and suburbs that voted no in the same-sex um, plebiscite, um, but they will they will use as they'll, they'll find you know they'll comb through the white pages till they find a, you know a Caucasian white straight male that they can they can pit it on and then four corners will do a yarn on them. Um, that, <laughs> that, so you you don't um, you, so, so the fact of the matter is that these groups are being alienated. Now I uh, am a yes voter. I have supported same-sex marriage. But that does not mean that I think anyone who still has a traditional view of marriage or, or thinks that ma marriage should remain as it used to be, I, that, I don't think they're a homophobe. I don't think they're a horrible person. I don't think that's hate speech. And yet you have, again, as we saw last week, and I thought it was pretty disgraceful as I made clear, but you saw this incredible hit job, this out-and-out -out character assassination on someone's uh, personal, private and historic behaviour um, dating back, what, about a quarter of a century, I think, you know, oh, he got drunk in public when he was at uni, went on a pub crawl, spare me. Um, or was caught snogging someone, another a consensual adult in the corner of a bar and, and exposing all this and, and crucifying them for that was okay because they voted no or supported the no case in the same-sex marriage debate. Now, that... That is not something I think that any mainstream party can ever um, uh, can ever support. That way of thinking that, um, you know, we can say, and, and this is my belief, and I think this is probably where the party will sort of end up, hopefully, if it, you know, gets its senses, comes to its senses. But let's say, well, look, the Labor platform is we support the right to same-sex marriage. We support same-sex couples' right to get married. But we understand that you've got Catholics, you've got Greek Orthodox, You've got Muslims, Jews, all of whom might not hold that view. Even just people who, you know, everyday run-of-the-mill people who, you know, thought they were agreeing with Labor's policy as it was 10 years ago and suddenly woke up to find out if they supported Labor's last policy when it was a government that they were now horrible homophobes. We say, you know what, that's okay. We don't think you're bad. We just think, we just think you're old-fashioned or you believe in tradition or you've got your family's cultural and religious traditions. That's fine. We still want you in the party. And we still want to hear from you. We still think you belong here because there's a bunch of other things that you believe in and care about that we will help um, make sure you get. Believing in, you know, being religious should not be a hate crime in the Australian Labor Party. It was a party that was basically founded by Catholics for Catholics. 
and um, and and the notion that you know to be Catholic now is tantamount to being you know one degree of separation away from a, a pedophile enabler or or being horribly homophobic or whatever is just is is simply firstly it's a great way to alienate a huge section of the, the population and it's also just um, morally morally repugnant. All right, I think we've got the handbook to get Labor back on its feet. So Joe Hildebrand, check him out on News Corp <laughs> websites and follow him on Twitter. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, guys. Absolute pleasure. Solidarity. Solidarity. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Okay, we now welcome back onto the show Sky News contributor and WA resident Caroline DeRusso. Welcome back to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. All right, so we want to talk to you because uh, West Australia's hard border closure mm-hmm. is back in the news. There was the story over the weekend that off the back of what's now, uh, at the moment of this interview, is I think 15 cases in South Australia, mm-hmm. uh, 15 new cases, 13 of which in one family. Western Australia changed their policy to say uh, anyone that comes into West Australia from South Australia needs to be quarantined, which then affected a plane full of people that Mm. left South Australia thinking, once I get into Western Australia, I'm free to go wherever I want. They're told the second they land, actually two-week quarantine. So I guess the first question is, like, is Western Australia ever going to be fully open to the rest of Australia (laughs) in our lifetimes? I wish I knew the answer to that. I feel like I've been railing against this borders thing since about June. Um, Look, I think we will eventually. We have an election in March. So I feel like um, to politely call it a cautious approach will probably be um, to take until at least March because, look, it's just the politically expedient thing to do. West Aussies, they, they love the border. Um, it's been it's been very popular um, up until this point. And, look, probably from about mm, maybe late August, we started to see a little bit of a change in attitudes, people starting to say, okay, we see the rest of the country starting to open up. We need to start to get with the program. We just need to be a bit careful. And and as you guys know, our border um, restrictions were reduced as of the 14th of November, which is two days ago, and we didn't even get 24 hours in. And, and of course, that, that policy has now changed um, already. So, look, I think it will, but uh, for the time being, I don't think there's going to be anything to... Um, too risky in that sort of a policy simply because um, there's there's so much political capital has been in the borders. That's interesting that you mentioned the amount of support they've got for borders mm. over there in WA. Uh, of course, that's the that's one of the driving force, or if not the driving force behind yeah. it. Now, what is we know they've been popular. Is the mood shifting with stuff like this? Are people getting sick and not being able to see their relatives? Yeah. Uh, are people getting upset? Yeah, it is. And look, a couple of things first. When we talk about the popularity, you know, one of the polls, you know, the 91% poll, that was like 837 people surveyed. So, you know, there's there's 2.8 million West Australians. So, you know, from, okay, it's a sample, but it's not statistically significant. And, and I don't know to what extent you can call that, you know, um, that, you know, real fundamental polling. But anyway, that there has been the number bandied around for a very long time. Um, but even the news poll, as we've seen it, um, he's still been popular. We have seen news poll peg back his popularity a little bit. And people have finally realised that, you know, most of the country has it, well, <laughs> apart from what's happened in South Australia the last couple of days, the country has it under control. Victoria, you know, I mean, you guys there was a little bit of a governmental belly flop there for a little while, but you've you've pegged it back. 
And remember, you know, New South Wales has managed to get through all of this without closing its border, save to Victoria. They've had plenty of outbreaks and they've got them under control. People have been travelling around. People have been coming in from New South Wales. So West Aussies have been saying, okay, the rest of the country seems to be able to be managing this. Why haven't I seen... What, been able to see my relatives for nine months or FIFO workers haven't seen... There's some people who haven't seen their kids since February. It kind of gets to the point where you're like, okay, we need to start to manage this. We need to start to get um, to deal with it because we cannot live in this bubble forever. And and probably from late August, it has been moving. And, um, and I think that's ultimately why that policy was changed, you know, towards the end of last month for, for the... The, the restrictions to be eased as at the big as at the middle of this month, because I think they finally realised that people weren't going to put up with that level of restriction any longer. So you mentioned uh, before that it a lot of Western Australia's border policies because there's an election coming up in March. Now mm. Scott Morrison has been saying for a while, like by Christmas, full country, we're open, and I guess today kind of explodes that idea. I mean, South Australia is cut off from Western Australia now, as well as Queensland. Do you reckon Scott Morrison's going to get his wish? Um, that's, uh, it should still be able to happen. And, and, and the reason being is, you know, coronavirus became a domestic issue for us in March. If between March and now, state governments have not been able to put in place processes to be able to manage that, the tracking and tracing and what have you, then really the question needs to be asked of the state governments, why aren't you ready to deal with this? You know, I'll give, here's an example from WA. In the last few months, we have experienced record ambulance ramping. Okay, so October was a higher ambulance ramping number of hours than in the middle of the flu season in 2019. So you've got a West Australian government that is like, look, we're going to close the borders, we're going to keep everyone safe, but, the, but they haven't done anything to be able to put us in a position to be able to manage the virus because the easy, lazy policy is to just close the border and kind of hope for the best. So as far as West Australia is concerned, no, I don't think Scott Morrison's going to get his wish and, to be honest, WA was never on board with that anyway. As far as the other states go, I think there's a better chance of that happening depending on how quickly South Australia are able to manage this and get it under control. Then that there will show the rest of the country how ready they are to manage the virus. We already know New South Wales is able to do it because they've done it, crossroads, and there's other examples of outbreaks they've been able to bring under control. We need to understand the standard in the other state governments because that there will ultimately... Um, inform how we move forward from here. Yeah, you could definitely see, um, you know, certainly here in Victoria, the capabilities of the governments. You see, you you want them to be able to improve over time. Like it's sort of it's difficult to believe that certain aspects of this haven't been able to improve since March. And you but you guys have got some extra it. fax machines and stuff, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Got apparently extra fax they, machines. They, I think they went they from like ten to twenty extra whiteboards. So you guys are all set to go. Oh, sweet. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, so in these national cabinet meetings, WA became famous for saying, nah, we're not going to do that. Um, was that. Is there any other reason that McGowan was holding back so much apart from just popularity? What, what, and, and how did that play with the people when, when he was sort of saying no to the rest of Australia? Um, it, that's kind of a little bit difficult um, 
to say exactly. I suppose the big part of it um, for the WA government and for the WA economy is being able to protect the mining industry. So that there was probably the number one consideration. You know, it's a big employer, it's a big export. And obviously with Brazil being in shutdown, the the, the iron ore price has gone through the roof. So, you know, I think the government was really particular about protecting that industry because, you know, if coronavirus got into the mines and the mines had to close, then then there's a whole there's a whole raft of issues that come off that. And I think a lot of people were pretty on board with that in the early days. Um, because it is such a major uh, major part of our economy. I just think that over time, people um, have now come to realise and come to understand that coronavirus isn't going away, you know. And, and yes, there's been um, announcements that, you know, potentially a vaccine is going to be brought forward and, and it's meant to be quite effective and all those sorts of things, but there's still a massive lag on, on a vaccine. So we, we can't just... Um, we can't just hide here. And, and the big problem with the WA economy is it because mining has been so strong and a lot of other things have been suffering, you, you have that real two-speed economy here. And I think there's just been so much government uh, largesse that we haven't felt that yet. Um, I don't know what the September figures were, but in, in August in WA, we saw another 3,200 um, applicants go on to uh, JobKeeper. So... They keep telling us the economy is fine, but then why are more people going on to JobKeeper? Why are more people going on to JobSeeker? So I think I think it's one of those things that's going to come out in the wash. At the moment, people haven't really felt the consequences of it as hard yet, so they've been more supportive of it. What gets me about Premier Mark McGowan is that the whole time at the start of the lockdowns, it was we're just doing the health border. Uh, sorry, we're just yeah. doing the border closures on health advice. We're guided by the health yep. advice, health advice, health advice, health advice. And then now that the health advice is starting to say open up, I mean, my favourite personal excuse was uh, what was it? Other states were pressuring Western Australia to open its border so Western Australian tourists would flood east and spend their money elsewhere. I mean, this, this guy's running out of reasons to keep it other than just uh, it's popular and I'm economically protected. So uh, is this just like this nine-month-long power trip for this guy? Yeah, pretty much. Well, it hasn't been a nine-month-long power trip. It's been a power trip since 2017. It's just, you know, we're over here and and he did it a little more quietly, I suppose, and and, and not on the national stage. Um, But when there was the um, original federal court hearings on the Palmer Challenge, our um, state chief health officer um, actually said that for states where there's no community transmission, there was a less than 1% chance of coronavirus returning to Western Australia. So that was July. What? Why has nothing happened between, say, July and November to, to try and reduce those border restrictions? And you're right, he, he did come out with, um, with comments like that. I did a podcast with Gideon and we, we were both just totally just gobsmacked that that um, a premier would even even say something like that which is openly economically protectionist but you know he clearly felt that he could get away with it that's uh that's extraordinary that one percent figure i hadn't heard that before that that's you know when you're weighing up proportionate risks and costs and stuff like that it's crazy that they could come up with a decision like that all right one more from me caroline now this is a little bit different to just coronavirus um we've seen like wa's always had the strongest uh, separatist streak, right, of all the Australian yeah. states. And we've seen that ramp up a lot throughout the COVID 
thing. Um, what uh, I know there's polls and stuff, but what is there actually many people on the ground in WA? And, and we know that WA has to pay, you know, they're an economically successful state. They have to pay for other states who aren't as economic, economically successful. Are there actually many people on the ground that would legitimately prefer it if WA left Australia? There are some people, and we have always had that bent a little bit, you know. We, we almost didn't become part of the Federation. Then in 1933, we were like, well, who, let's have a referendum and, and leave. And it's one of the few referendums which we actually voted yes to. We've managed to, we've managed to say, but I guess maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a product of our isolation and, and, in a sense, in recent times because of our economic success, that West Australians, you know, do have that idea that, you know, we're better off on our own. And I've had quite a few people say to me, oh, well, we're net 200 billion in our favour. Why are we part of WA? I'm like, awesome. Well, let's set up our own customs. Let's set up our own, you know, border protection. Let's set up all those other federal institutions, which, you know, form part of what we already have. And then, you know, then tell me whether we're net 200 billion in front. Yeah, I uh, oh, I certainly hope the Western Australia stays where it is because when I like to uh, you know switch that light thing on, I do like when the uh, light comes on, which <laughs> I think I'd have to say goodbye to very quickly. Uh, now, certainly one place or like institution in Western Australia that's really pushing this like Western Australia separatism is this West Australian because uh, when the Mark McGowan famously said no to the National Cabinet idea of open borders. The West Australian next day puts out that it's our West Australia Day and like this new yeah, independence day. Terrible. Yeah. Uh, terrible. First up, what was going on with that? And, and please, is that like the best they could come up with as a name for the national holiday? And then second, what do you make of the media coverage of Mark McGowan through all this? He seems to be getting away with literally everything. Yeah, um, he, he really has been for the most part. Look, the West Australian, let's just again, politely call it, has been incredibly favourable to this government. Um, and and I, I'm not going to make any insinuations or any comment as to why. I mean, this is not the first time um, that the West Australian has, has very um, strongly supported a Premier in this state. Um, they generally tend to, well, not generally, but they have in the past picked up a horse, so to speak, so, so for me, that's not particularly unusual. There are some um, exceptions. Um, and it, even within the West Australian itself, there's occasionally an article that is, you know, slightly unhelpful to the government. Um, but, you know, guys like Nathan Hondros, um, Ollie Peterson, Gareth Parker, you know, th they either publish um, for other publications and then obviously Gareth and Ollie are on 6PR and they do a lot of talk back. So they they um, they work the Premier and, and, and the government and its policies pretty hard. Um, within the West Australian itself, it's, it's a pretty smooth ride most of the time. Um, but then, you know, I ask people, uh, I actually don't know anyone who owns a subscription to the West Australian. So there, there becomes that question of what is the actual influence versus the perceived influence? So that there, you know, that there's the, the, the second part to that. Um, so, so yes, they're very favourable um, and that they obviously do have some level of influence, but I don't think it's as huge as everyone would like to have us believe. Caroline DeRusso, thank you so much for your time. Anytime, guys. My pleasure. 
thank you to Joe and Caroline for those interviews. We'll now go through some stories that made us laugh this week. Now, this one uh, is doing quite the rounds in America at the moment, and it is a very funny story because we might not be defunding the police for much longer. Here's the story. So there is a councilwoman in Portland, Oregon, which is one of the most left-wing places you can find in the U.S., and she is big on the idea of defunding the police. She became famous around America for saying that most 911 calls are fake anyway, so why do they need this much funding? And maybe she only thought that because she happens to make some phone calls that are fake. So she went viral this week because she uh, the 911 call that she made the audio which went out and basically she called 911 on a lift driver because she was in a lift lift being you know basically another service like uber she was in an uber slash lift and the lift driver wouldn't roll up the windows of the car presumably because he's scared of covid uh and she got so angry that they were started an argument he pulled over and said get out of my car she said i'm not getting out of the car in this neighborhood he said if you don't get out of my car i'll call the police she says, okay, if you want to call the police, I'll do it for you. Then she's calling the police because I don't actually know. Like, what's why did the police get called? <laughs> she called the police. She was like, you have to make this guy... It's a, like, it's illegal for this guy to kick me out of the car and you have he has to call me a, a replacement driver. And they said it's not illegal because it's his car. And only... I thought there was look. a replacement driver as well. <laughs> well, they said only you can... Only you can order a replacement driver. That's how Lyft works. Like, I actually explained to her how Lyft works. With the, with yeah. the Windows thing, though, he had them down because like it's Lyft requirements. As part of his requirements as a Lyft driver to fight COVID, he had to have the Windows down. Oh, right. It okay. wasn't even Sorry. his choice. It wasn't even his... That is... Defund the police. And, okay, so she... <laughs> you can't be doing that if you run on defund the police. She... Like literally a few days before this had an amendment up on the Portland Council or whatever whatever it's called for $18 million to be reallocated from Portland police to like, you know, the community, whatever that means. Police <laughs> the community into research and development of like lifting up windows. Yeah, <laughs> How much yeah. of a threat is it? And COVID spread. So that was knocked back and she said, move past the fear and stretch ourselves to take the action that is demanded. So, you know, why don't you move past the fear, Joe? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it was crazy, and and um, I just don't understand. Does she just lie all the time? Like, does she just say things she doesn't mean constantly? I look. This is uh, literally the first I'm hearing of her. I mean, I heard about the most nine one one cause of fake, and now I'm hearing about this. So I don't really have a whole long line of knowledge on which to draw upon with her. But uh, certainly on this case, that is hilarious. Yeah. So he ended up calling the police, and she had to get out. But the the, I just, yeah, like if she calls on them to defund the police all the time and then for, for nothing at all, just to get someone in trouble, she calls the police, then that must mean she lies constantly. But anyway, it's a great story. Check it out. It's really funny. The end, later in the week, she ended up blaming it on white supremacy and the patriarchy. Yeah, but it's, all, it's, it's too late. Which of course. <laughs> if she yeah. brought it up on the 911 call, it might have been like, okay, this is what I thought at the time, but now that's just post facts. This is why I was right. It's like yeah, when yeah. you get in an argument with someone and you're telling someone else about it and they're like, I don't I think the other person might be right. They're like, No, 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 but you should have heard what he said and then you just start making things up about to make yourself look better. <laughs> Man, I can't I can't imagine ever doing that, James. But yeah, no, I'll I'll, I'll try and work it out. But I think she was worried she was saying that there were white supremacists driving around Portland, which I find hard to believe. But All right, all uh, right. shall we move on? What are we doing? Beverly Hills? 
Uh, sure. So this was another one that came out of the US. So uh, basically this county by county look at where uh, Californians voted. And it is an absolute sea of blue in Los Angeles, as you'd imagine, except yeah. for these two, well, three really, but I want to hone in on two here. These two side-by-side uh, red dots in a sea of blue, which happen to make up Beverly Hills. Now, that seems to be a little weird for me. You would think the most, uh, you know, in the middle of California, middle of Southern California, the elite rich, that would be uh, as Biden country as it possibly can be. But they voted red. They did. It uh, Around them, there were lots of places that voted, voted for violent, uh, Biden, like Bel Air and stuff. But yeah, there was in Beverly Hills, these two places. Um, I'm sort of heartened by that. That's like a little kind of, a little sort of cohort in Brunswick saying we should build a Dani, <laughs> which I guess that's what I was when I lived there. Uh, you know, or, or someone in Surrey Hills in Sydney to, to use an NSW reference um, saying that unconscious bias is, you know, a fairy tale. I think um, it's more when I, you know, you may take a very positive view of it. I think it's more people going like, oh, when I said eat the rich, I didn't mean me. Yeah. I think that seems to be the overriding vote. Don't take my stuff, as Andrew Bushnell said on the company Slack during the week. Um, yeah, so the, so that's your take. You're you're saying that that, that this is uh, this is just a bit yeah. of hypocrisy. Oh, you're not These are people realizing uh, if you feed, if, if you sacrifice others to the beast, it doesn't mean it won't eat you last. I think this is just the start, James. I think you know, in a few years, we're, this is the start of the cultural revolution in a good way. Yep. Where are young and naive, Pete, not withered <laughs> by the world. <laughs> All right, uh, so have you got any more on that, James, or not? No, that was it. So we also, like, there was this fame image that did the rounds here in Australia of Malcolm Turnbull. I think it's at the Four Corners, then into Q&A thing. But anyway, it is a photo of Malcolm Turnbull in a green room doing his favourite thing of staring lovingly at a TV image of Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> for those, we'll chuck it up on the screen for those watching on YouTube. The, it's an unfortunate photo for Malcolm. It's like, <laughs> he does look quite transfixed. Like, he's just like, you know, there he is, like, looking at the screen as he says the mm. thing that he already knows what he says. Uh, it's an unfortunate for someone like him who knows, who's famous for having uh, a really high opinion of himself. You know, you can just yeah. see him sort of nodding, going, I couldn't agree with me more here. I'd agree with you that it was a gotcha moment, except for the fact that he was watching it on a loop for two straight days before that photo was taken. So, you know, I, I do think he was asking for the attention eventually. I don't think he can sort of say this is a gotcha moment, given he was watching 57 minutes of a gotcha, you know, report. Um, and the fact yeah. he's still watching it. Yeah. Like, you can go to that room, he's still there. He's, he hasn't moved. What is... Uh, has he commented on this, James? I couldn't find anything. No, he's still watching. He's <laughs> okay. He's blissfully unaware. You know what's going to happen, though? He's going to read an article about this, and then we'll get the photo of him looking at a photo of him looking at a photo of him. Yeah. It's just going to be one of those, um, I don't even want to call it, like a babushka doll of just different Malcolm Turnbulls looking at Malcolm Turnbull. Well, there's an opportunity for a young entrepreneur out there to release a range of Malcolm Turnbull babushka dolls. Um, so, James, are we right to move on to my final thing? Yes. The final story now. I'll, I'll, I'll give you this one. This is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, one of my favourite facts about the world. Uh, North, Thur- North Thurston Public Schools in Washington State in the US created controversy during the week when they uh, removed Asian students from the students of colour category in a report they put out because 
um, <laughs> unfortunately, it seems like high-achieving students of Asian background were not giving them the results they wanted to get with regards to disparities between white students and students of color. So basically, they had this graph where the, you know, it was illustrating the growing disparity between white students and students of color. However, the white students category had white students slash Asian students and then students of color in the, uh, in the other line. Um, and usually, of course, Asian students get counted in the students of color. So... And this leads me to one of my favorite facts about the world, which makes it so difficult to justify this idea that Australia or America or any other country, uh, well, not even any other country, but countries like Australia and America um, are beset by white supremacy is the fact that students of Asian background and Indian background in the United States do better at uni, uh, make more money, go to better schools. And it's, you know, how does that, clearly that flies in the face of this idea that we are living in a white supremacist society. So that's why I love this story, James. I just want people to, like, you know, uh, people from minority backgrounds to know that the far left will always be there for you until you start being successful. And then they will <laughs> drop you like a bad smell and they will move on to someone else. Whatever you do, don't start doing well. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst thing you can do for them. <laughs> the second oh, you stop good. being victims, they will run from you and forget you even existed and even portray you as the enemy that they're fighting against and trying to get uh, people to enroll from school. All right, that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Joe Hildebrand and Caroline DeRosso. Check out Joe Hildebrand on news.com.au. Check out Caroline on Sky News. Thanks to everyone listening. If you are listening through Apple Podcasts, if you could leave us a review, that really helps us uh, you know, grow the show, send it out to new people. But the best way to grow the show is for you out there to tell friends and family that you know that like politics and would like to hear from us about the show. Tell them where you can download. They can download this show wherever they want. Uh, and, you know, we're not the only podcast that the IPA is doing. We've got Looking Forward coming out every week. We've got Viral Banter coming out every two weeks. A bunch of really fun episodes of Five Favourite Books is on the horizon, which I'm really looking forward to listening to. And then back in the vault, you've got Australia's Future, John Roskam and Tony Abbott talking about uh, how to protect Australia's culture. I mean, big big step back this week now that South Australia looking back in lockdown, so it's a really good time to revisit those discussions. Uh, and great books and literature podcast and all these other stuff that we're doing. So, if, you know, go listen to those. And if you like what we've been talking about and you're not already a member of the IPA, head on over to ipa.org.au slash join. Uh, really affordable memberships. Become part of Australia's biggest voice for freedom. And we'll see you guys next week. I would just like to make the point, James, that when you say tell your friends about the Young IPA podcast, the Young IPA podcast actually makes a great birthday or Christmas present. It's free and you'll provide this person with like 50 hours entertainment a year so think about it so do you say like your christmas present is hang on can you hand over your phone and tell me your passcode for a second that's it yeah 50 hours of entertainment a year get prepare the pitch in your head before that because you don't you don't want to come in half-baked with that idea because they're not gonna like it all right that is it see you guys next week see ya